Today we're going to finish our section I've sort of recreated. A lot of light in here, so I hope you can read this. But uh, kind of recreated what we did last week, and we're going to add on it. We're dealing with chapter 4. Of, uh, we're in the book of Philippians. I'm thinking you remembered that. But the theme of chapter 4 is really peace. And um, it's, it's, it's a quality of life that he's addressing. Not so much our peace with God, which is established by the finished work of Christ. It's more peace as a quality of life. It's one, and this is why what I did, here's the quality. It is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Galatians 5.22 tells us this. But in this passage, what Paul is doing is he's focusing on what is our role in this. Another way of asking the question might be, if we want to have that quality of life called the peace of God, that the Spirit produces, do we just sit back? Okay, Spirit, produce it. Or... Are we to be activists in the pursuit of this? So do you understand what I'm doing? you understand how I'm setting it up? Because that's what he's addressing here. And so it's uh, verse 4 through 9. We're only about halfway through it. But he says, first of all, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. An attitude of joy. And among other things last week, we talked about that as an attitude of gratitude where instead of being a circumstance-controlled person, we are a spirit-controlled. Instead of a circumstance-focused person, we're a God-focused person. What we know about God is what produces this, this attitude, this perspective, this demeanor, this quality of joy. And it's a spirit of gratitude, thankfulness, acceptance uh, of, of God. Secondly, uh, he says, and this is a hard one, let your gracious, a very difficult word to translate, let your gracious or magnanimous or gentle spirit be known to all men, because uh, the Lord is near. And we talked about that word. Essentially, it's get along with people. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a command that produces this quality, but it's almost common sense. And we talked about that. I used some examples from my own life. And then the last of the first three is uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and uh, supplication, let your request be made known to God. So to put it in a simple phrase, pray, not worry. And of course, that's the easiest one of the three, isn't it? Uh, right? <laughs> Let's finish our discussion about that. Verse uh, 6 again. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. <clears throat> Now, I'm going to ask you, before we leave verse 6, I want to ask you a very simple question. What is prayer? A dialogue with God. Who, who said that? Oh, Matt. Well, uh, yes, that's a great answer, because you've heard me talk about it in that way. That's right. It's a dialogue with God. I defined it as a dialogue between two people who love one another. It's a conversation. Now, it's, there are so many levels at which to think about it, because obviously he's our God, he's our Lord, he's our Savior, and so on. But as he says in the, uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, he's also our friend. I call you friend, he says. But God is after intimacy with us. But it's on his terms. And he provides that 
through the sacrifice and, uh, and resurrection of his son. But he wants that. That's one of the reasons he created us. So prayer is this ongoing dialogue, this ongoing conversation. And we'll see this when we get into the Thessalonian study. Paul says at the very end of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. That's an extra, that's a, by the way, that's not a suggestion, that's a command. And you just think, well, what does that mean? He will say in the same letter to the first of uh, First Thessalonians, night and day I pray for you. Which uh, would have been for them very comforting, but you have to think through, what does that mean? The man doesn't sleep, he doesn't do anything but prayer. No, it just means that Paul is in this constant dialogue with the Lord. He's bringing the Lord into every aspect of his life. I think that's important for you and me. Because if you are talking to the Lord throughout your day, and I'm, I'm not saying that you know every minute you're talking, because obviously we have work to do, he gives us stewardship responsibilities, but you're in that constant framework, if I can put it that way, of talking to him. You're thanking him for a gorgeous day when you wake up and you see it's just an absolutely beautiful day. I mean, he would absolutely be thrilled if you say to him, Lord, thank you for creating this day and sharing it with me. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my children. I mean, just it's that constant just talking to him. And you know when we do that, one, that builds our faith, but it's also convicting. Because if we are talking to the Lord and drawing him into everything, then that means it's going to be like a check on some of the decisions we might make, even the decisions of sin. You know, you're talking to the Lord one hour, and the next hour you're being severely tempted to do something that you know is clearly wrong, and you go ahead and do it. And I, I'm just trying to set up a scenario of what I'm talking But if you're constantly in dialogue with him, that constant discussion, talking, bringing him into everything, that can be like a check. And in, this is what Paul's getting at here. Don't worry about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication. Prayer, general word, supplication, very specific requests. With a spirit of thanksgiving, let your request be made known. So it's this, it's, and this is not an original thought with me, it is a lifestyle of prayer. Now it makes sense why well, he puts it into this three aspects dimension, if you will, for us if we want to have that quality of life called the peace of God. All right, you want to think about that with me? You want to comment on that? You want to talk more about that? Matt? If you added, it's not in this book, but if you added flee from evil into that as like number four, you pretty much are going to be, I mean, there's probably not a better, if you were going to add one thing to that, if you added flee from evil like Jesus did, he could be around evil, but it's a flee from evil. Mm. But I think sometimes we think we're, we can, oh, you know, we that's not going to bother us. If we watch that movie or if we do that, if we hang out with that person, even though we know we're always, we think we can beat it sometimes. But I think we can handle it. We can handle it. Mm-hmm. And you might be able to for sure. an hour or two. Sure. But if you do, if you watch the wrong thing every day, over and over and over, it's going to get in, it's going to, the tentacles of that are going to get into your brain. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and, and you're not going to, if you were to just flee from it for the first time, you wouldn't have to deal with it. He does address it. Matt, 
he does address it, but from a positive perspective in verse 8. Okay, I mean, you are right on, brother. But it's interesting how he addresses it. He has exactly what he says. But instead of putting it in the negative, he puts it in the positive. So Matt and I had this all planned. That's how we were going to segue to verse 8. All right, but are you with me on these three? That's sort of a review of what we did last week, but I really wanted to camp more on that last one on prayer before we, we, we leave it. On the second item, when you were searching for a word, the, the word that comes to my mind, and this is something I've thought about for a while, is winsome. Hmm. And I always chuckle because I think of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum when the young Publius or whoever it was singing about his girl and he's winsome maybe you know. chair over there but I think that that's important and yeah. I don't think that that's the way that we gain people's attention yeah. by, you know that's part of our witness if you will. I agree with that no, I agree with that and I, that's a good uh, that's a good word that that kind of fits in with what uh, what verse is that verse 5 is talking about you know I like that I would encourage you I and I get to minute, just a minute. I just want to emphasize this. I really encourage you men to think about your prayer life, not from the perspective. And, and this is the worst, the worst takeaway you can have today. If you take away uh, from this this time together, walk away and feel really, really guilty about your prayer life. I don't want you to do that. What instead I want you to do is say, okay, it, it, this is an important verse in my life. For me to think about applying, how how can I enhance my conversation with God? That's the question you should be asking. I don't want you to leave here feeling terribly guilty and bury yourself in a hole because you're not measuring up. That's the worst approach to this. How can I enhance my conversation with the Lord? And it's I have prayed this in my own life. Lord, help me to have a thankful spirit 24-7 so that I can thank you for absolutely everything. That's what he's getting at here. You following? So I'm going to say this. I do not want you to walk out of here feeling guilty and digging a big hole about, oh, I don't measure up. That's performance-based Christianity. That's not grace. You're saying, Lord, I want to increase my talking to you because you love me, and that's what you want. Help me to see that as an important value in my life. Did I? I was just, well, I was just going to say, with, and this is kind of a broad question, it, it, you know, it's drawn out so simply and so obviously, yet why is it so hard mm-hmm. to do Who is the one being in the universe that doesn't want you to do that? Satan. I mean, the evil one. The one, I mean, this, again, this is not an original thought with me. The one thing Satan does not want for the believer is to have them enhancing their talk to God. In Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, that's one of the things he brings out. As, do you know what that, it's a wonderful book, but you know, that the, the veteran demon is teaching this young guy how to, and, he, and it's one of the things he says to him, if you can do anything, keep them from praying. Don't let them pray. Get their mind off something, onto something else. Interrupt their life. Get them so they don't talk to the Lord. So that's, I mean, that's really, so it's a, I hate to use the word, but it sort of fits. It's one of the disciplines. But see, then you're thinking, when I use the word, you're thinking performance. I've got to perform, and then God will love me more. That's not what, because you love him and he loves you, talking to him is just a natural outflow. But it's, 
it's something you have to think about, you have to be intentional about. And the more and more you do it, the more and more natural it comes. So that, as Forrest Gump said, we're now in the 21th year of that movie. That's all I have to say about that. I'm sorry, I don't know why I brought Forrest Gump into this. <laughs> verse 7. Look at verse 7. Now, the first word of verse 7 is what? And. Now, I know you know this, but that's a coordinating conjunction, which means it's connected to the previous three verses. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So following this exhortation is a promise. It's a promise that Paul is making as an, an apostle with the authority of an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a promise. You will have that quality of life called peace of God, the peace of God. And it will guard your heart and guard your mind. Let's think about that for a minute. We, last week we put a whole list of things on the board for peace. So I'm not going to go over that again, what that quality looks like. He says, the peace of God, we, again, we put a bunch of words on the board. He says it surpasses all comprehension. Some translations have surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? Comprehension. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, you were, if you were to sit down and write a paragraph of what the peace of God is, That'd be kind of hard to do. I mean, to, to where you're, you're capturing every dimension and every aspect of it. We talked a little bit about it last week. But that's what Paul is saying. It is really, really difficult to sit down and write a paragraph that describes all aspects of the peace of God. Would you go as far as to say it's impossible to beyond our capacity to do that? As he says over... Later on, with all things God are possible, with all with God, all things are possible. So I'm not sure I want to say it's impossible, but <laughs> it's humanly speaking, it's it's just hard to describe it in such a way where you're not leaving something out. So it's kind of, but what he's saying, the the more important thing is it guards. Now I don't all your tra- you're not reading from the same translation I am, but guard. It's a military term. That's what it's a military term in the in original language. It's like, like a guard around a prison barracks or a guard around an officer or any kind. What does that, what's the reason for that? Protection, security, safety. Protection, security, safety of your heart and of your mind. So the peace of God brings stability to your life. Stability in your will, in your emotions, and in your thoughts. That's what he's saying. That's a good thing. Because I don't, maybe you, you guys probably don't like this, but uh, not quite as much as it used to be in my life, but when I was in pre- as a president for 15 years, my life some days was really, really chaotic. I mean, just very chaotic. Everything that I planned for that day, I didn't get one thing accomplished. I remember days I had a whole list of things on my calendar I was going to accomplish. I finally got to number one at 4.45 in the afternoon. And that's chaotic. And he's just saying, oh, my goodness. Paul is saying, the peace of God guards your hearts and your minds. 
circumstances are not going to change in your life. If you live a chaotic life, just because you're seeking the peace of God, that's not going to change. Peace of God is going to change you and produce that stability. Remember the, the story I told you last week of the robin sitting on her nest in the midst of a torrential waterfall cascading over the rock producing? Remember that? In the midst of chaos, you're at peace. That's the image of this. So the peace of God is a super, and that's why it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, but supernatural quality that helps produce stability. Now, verse 8 gets to what Matt was saying uh, a while ago. Look at how he puts this, because he says, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Now, in your notes I did, there's eight spaces there. If you were to put in one phrase or one short sentence the point of verse 8, what would it be? We're going to take all eight of them apart in a minute, but if you were to put it in one phrase or one short sentence, what would it be? Excellent, excellent. It's important to God what we put into our mind. Now, some of you are, you're, Andrew's a computer guy, so he would know this. But I don't know if it's all right. That's fine, I'm thinking. Oh, did you, do you remember when the computer industry was just getting started, or at least PCs and all that stuff? They would use a little phrase, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Did you ever hear that before? And what, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but as I understood that, if you program junk into a computer, what are you going to get out? Junk. So it's like he's saying to us, if you program junk into your mind, don't expect a life of righteousness to come out. So another way of saying is it matters what you put into your mind. Another way of saying it, and this is, I think, this is, Matt was approaching it from one angle. Paul's now approaching it from, because in other places he says flee from evil. But here he's not saying it that way. Instead, he's doing really, really positive. Be very careful what you let into your mind. And that's where you get human responsibility. It's not really free will. Well, you have that responsible stewardship. Be careful what you let into your mind. Now listen, again, what 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 you can do with this is you can say, okay, give me a list of what I shouldn't look at, shouldn't read, shouldn't watch. I am not going to do that. And no responsible leader should do that. Because you're going to come back two weeks from now. Okay, update my list, please. You know that's ridiculous. I'm not going to bind your conscience with my convictions in this area. But can I, I don't mean this sounds terrible, but you are a fool if you think you do not have that responsibility of being careful, discerning of what you put into your mind. And Matt, I think it was Matt who said, and that's is correct. Around, we have a lot of people around. I was about what, 23 or 24 people. If you, if you sit all of us down in front of a television screen or something 
And certain things come on the, the television screen. Some guys, it's going to really bother them. Some guys won't bother them at all. And some guys almost go to sleep. And I, I'm being a little bit of exaggerated in my language there, but visual stuff affects us differently. I mean, a commercial can have a tremendous effect on a guy and doesn't even affect another guy. A magazine cover, no effect on another guy, just because it's all of our past, all of our baggage, and everything else that's part of our lives is what causes us to respond the way we respond to stimuli. So all he's saying is, be careful. So instead of saying, don't do this, 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 what does he do? He says, think on these things, things that are true. So it's, it's like, now you've got to remember, these are people that live, the Philippians, that live in the Greco-Roman world. And the Greco-Roman world was the first major civilization in history that visually did a lot of things with sexual acts. If you've ever been to Pompeii, because that was that whole civilization preserved in ash, when Vesuvius responded, you think pornography is bad now, you should see some of the stuff that was on the walls of that city. And so this was a visual culture. This was a culture that was saturated with sex. But it was, it's also, it's a lot more than that. Because it can be all the kinds of things that promote covetousness and greed. I mean, it's all of those things. It is, you know, we think mainly of sexual things. Don't really think that way. So Paul's being real positive. Be careful what you put into your mind. So, concentrate on things that are true. Now see, true, that means be really careful what you read, what you think about. And things that are true, if I can be very, very bold, the Bible becomes your grid through which you evaluate things. So that's not true. Yesterday I read an article by um, Bill Hybels. Uh, it's in a leadership magazine. But anyway, it was really good. It was, he, he has some good things to say often. But he, it was a great phrase, and it stuck with me all day. Well, yesterday and now this morning I'm thinking about it. He calls it strategic denial. As men, he says, we need to have strategic denial in our life. You have to think about that. He uses a whole bunch of illustrations. Strategic denial and certain things that you just decide, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. One, because I, I can't solve it. And two, it's so overwhelming. If I burn a lot of brain cells on it, it's going to take me from, away from other things that are really important. Strategic denial, just certain things. I'm just going to choose not to watch. Choose not to read. Because they're either not true or they are so interspersed with falsehood, that's really not healthy for me to get that in my mind. That's a good phrase. Strategic denial. Now, what does that mean in your life? I don't know. You have to think that through. I'm not going to tell you how I'm thinking it through because it just doesn't matter. But it matters that you are thinking that way. I think, tend to think of Flip side, God knows this. The enemy knows it too. Oh, it, it takes you back to the screw tape letter. 
who knows that, that why do you think that we the Greeks had all the sex in their celebration mm -hmm. and why over the past 50 years it's it's come to dominate our media mm -hmm. absolutely but even I mean, think, and that is so absolutely correct, but even beyond that, just think of someone you see, I'm, I'm going to make this up, but someone you see being interviewed on television that says, you know, really, the I'm paraphrasing, but this is the point they're saying, the most important drive and motivation in your life is to make money, and that the key to security and the key to safety is making a lot of money. Is that true? Again, what does he say? Whatever is true. That's not true. And if you don't remember why that's not true, go back and read the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Remember we studied that? The richest man in the world. He says, I have, I have everything. There is nothing I have that I couldn't have with my wealth. I never deny myself anything. What's he say? Vanity of vanities, all this vanity. Didn't he also say that fools are happier? Yes. Yes. And so, and what my friend told me, I told you this, a number of weeks ago, this guy who came to Christ a little later in life, he says, I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. It's a very, he's a very successful businessman. But he, he's just, he's come to, that's, so what I'm saying is, is, it isn't only sexual stuff, it's every subtle aspect of life. If it isn't true, and you know it's not true, don't dwell on it. Substitute something that's true for that which is false. I'm puzzled by why Paul is using the word, let your Giving permission and no, what does that mean? It it means it, it's okay. It's the way um, it's the way it's translated, and I think that's unfortunate to translate it that way. There is no Greek word for let in the Greek language, Daryl. It's a command. It's in the imperative mood. He is saying, whatever is true, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, dwell on those things. Now, let your mind dwell is, I mean, it's, 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 perfectly, it's perfectly appropriate to translate it that way. But it sends in English the message, well, if you ever get around to it, start doing this. It is a command. So it's like, Daryl, let your mind dwell on this. This is wise counsel I'm giving you in the form of a command. Let your mind dwell on this, Daryl. That makes a lot more sense because yep. in the flesh, it would never happen. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly. 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 Thanks for that. Yeah. Second is honorable. Did you have a question, Fred? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, these um, from six on or before, he is addressing comment on Christians or non-Christians? Here, he's addressing Christians. So these things... A person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, this is irrelevant to them. Because they'll never, ever, ever be able to do it. And they wouldn't understand this, what this means, either in the sense that we would understand it, having had some relationship with well, I'm not sure I want to go that far because people who don't give a hoot about Christianity know that it really matters what you put into your mind. I mean, educational theorists, again, that don't even care about Christianity are really saying it's really, really important what we expose children to. 
And so, so I mean, it, it, so it's not out of tune with a secular mindset or any other mindset for that matter. The difference, Fred, and I thought that's where you were going, but maybe it wasn't. The difference is you and I have a power and an enablement to pull this off. Um, there, well, okay. I was going to go down a bunny trail, but I'm not going to. Let's go to the second, whatever is honorable. Now, um, some translations have whatever is noble. So let's think about that, honorable, noble. That's kind of what's dignified, worthy of respect, worthy of dignity. And that can have absolutely nothing to do with sexual issues, but things that are um, really worthy of investing your time in as a form of entertainment or the kind of book you're going to read or the things you're going to go out and take. It's just, is what you are doing or what you're exposing yourself to conducive to helping to develop values of honor and dignity and respect in your life? Or will it have the opposite effect? You know, what is God really delights in us being critical thinkers. And you know, one of the real challenges in our, in our world is that uh, at least to the greatest, maybe maybe the computer and smartphone is changing that a little bit because you have to make certain decisions about what you're going to connect with. But television is an incredibly passive medium. I mean, it, it, and you just you're taking it in constantly. You know, um, my mother, um, mom's 87 now, but a couple of years ago when I traveled, I stopped in to see she and dad went on one of the trips, just a real quick visit. And she started telling me this story. She and Dad, the other night, this is, goes back now a number of years ago, but she and Dad were watching a television program. And on the program, it was all kinds of things, mocking men and making fun of men, and then an adulterous situation came up and all that. And they were laughing, and she said, all of a sudden, it hit her. We are laughing at something that God regards as ruin affront to everything that's valuable to him. Instead of mocking a man and making fun of a man who's trying to lead his home, it was a father, and then he and it gets into this horrible situation. She said, you know, and then she says her statement, we watched something that three or four years ago we would have turned off. I thought, oh my, mom, do you mind if I use that in a sermon? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I said that to her because that was an incredibly insightful comment because that is what, it, you just you get a diet of that. And in, instead of watching things that we choose for entertainment or reading or whatever it is that reinforces that which is honorable and noble and dignified and worthy of respect, and I'm telling you, you start using those words. Can you think of many situation comedy television programs today that do that? Can you think of a – it's hard for me to bring to my mind – I don't really know too much even though it's on anymore because we don't watch it very much. But anyway, of a situation comedy – that reinforces the values and morals and ethical standards that are dear to God's heart. It's really hard for me to come up with one. It's not going to be funny. Huh? It's not going to be funny. Yeah. I did. I watch a lot of old movies, and there's a lot of covert innuendos in those old movies. Even old John Wayne movies. I like watching John Wayne. But if there's a lot of good messages in there too, if you pick them out. 
there is a lot of colorful stuff in there. Well, yeah. That's that they put it more blatantly nowadays and more visual nowadays. But the stuff, if you watch the movies from the fifties, they were still kind of like that. So it was probably that diet from the fifties and then this kind of sixties, seventies. Yeah. It escalated. But yeah. do you think it was easier when there was more censorship in the fifties than it is today? Easier in what sense? I mean, easier is a well, fluid word. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Easier for you to, I think a few times you said you, like your Sunday school class wouldn't go to a, or your, your school wouldn't go to a movie, or so you kind of like boycott a movie. And I don't see that today. Boycott yeah. That was a long, 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 long time ago. Yeah. Was it? Well, there's not been a good comedy since the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> I'm too old. I'm the old, old one around here that knows what even that show is about. But uh, I don't know, Matt. I mean, was it more covert? So you yeah, were, it's probably it was a lot more subtle. It was a lot more subtle. But you know, yeah. Well, now there's nothing subtle and uh, covert. It's blatant now. I mean, it's just very, very, very blatant. Now, so again, but think of, think of the larger point of what he's saying. Things that are honorable. Things that cultivate respect and dignity. That's what he's talking about. And then with that is things that are right, and that's a very clear word, those things that are conformity to God's standard, those things that match with God's values, his morals, his ethical standards. Are we saying leave it to beaver? Is that... I am not going to start commenting on television <laughs> programs. But anyway. Yeah. That which is pure, wholesome, not contaminated, that which is lovely. That's a beautiful Greek word there. It's actually a philosophical word. It's, it's ethical beauty, where you celebrate that which is really beautiful to God. That which is a very difficult word to translate here, that which is uh, of good repute and admirable. Yeah, yeah. Backing up to noble, right. when I think of being noble, it's a sense of patriotism that but then some of the things of be, being a patriot may not necessarily be like to defend our country sometimes those people have to, to kill I mean, and, and that kind of creates a quandary <clears throat> in the right and wrong compass well there's a bunny trail we could go down yeah well, this, uh, I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, what's the name? American Sniper, I think. That's creating some discussion, uh, controversy, I guess you could say. And it's been interesting how people are coming down on either side of this issue, because this guy was a sniper. I forget how many uh, individuals he actually killed, but it was part of war. It was part of what, you know. And it's, uh, it, it raises the kinds of questions that ultimately lead to the ethical issue, is there such a thing as a just war? And if there is, then you have what have to have criteria. Augustine came up with six criteria for the just war. He got them from scripture. But I think it's important for all of us to think through that issue. War is not just um, two nation states duking it out. As a Christian, you and I have to think through as a Christian, something that creates enormous tension in our lives. I mean, I teach ethics, and this is something I really stress on my students. It raises a kind of profound, because throughout, 
Throughout the scriptures, you see the importance of life to God. He creates it. It has dignity. It has value. Even David says, when I was an unformed substance in my mother's womb, God, you knew me. You knew why I was important to you, which I think has an awful lot to say about prenatal life. But the point I'm making is, and then you go to a whole other issue where you have war, where you are teaching men and women to intentionally kill image bearers. How do you resolve that tension? where life is of infinite worth and value to God, and yet in certain circumstances of war, you're intentionally teaching people and, in effect, affirming people who kill image bearers. And the only way to resolve that is to ask the question, is there such a thing as a just war in a fallen world? And over the last 2,000 years, well, actually this was discussed even before Christianity and Judaism discussed it, concluded there's such a thing. But there are conditions. Now, I'm getting, this is not a political statement. It really isn't. I want you to just go back and think about it. When you look at uh, George H.W. Bush, 41, when he went to war against Saddam, remember when Saddam invaded Kuwait, took it and all that? If you look very carefully at how James Baker, how President Bush, and the entire cabinet team, how they talked about that war, it was a just war. They were very, very clear they did everything they could to get uh, Saddam out of Kuwait. Uh, last resort, that's one of the criteria. I mean, they did everything they could. Proportionately, they responded. And it was a very clear intention. We are going to get him out of Kuwait. As soon as he's out of Kuwait, the war's over. You remember a, whole, a whole lot of people, why didn't you go after, why didn't you go up to Baghdad? Because Bush said, listen, that was not the intent of this. We gathered a whole coalition of 47 nations to do one thing, get him out of Kuwait. And when he's out of Kuwait, the war's over. That's a, it, it, was, it was masterful how they framed that. And I, I really appreciated it, that because they were thinking and leading the nation through a clearly articulated set of goals in war. And when that goal was reached, the war was over. World War II, he said the same thing. The clear goal of this is unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, unconditional surrender of Japan. And until those are achieved, the war's going to continue. And I'm not trying to justify war. This creates a lot of tension for us. But I think it's time for me to say that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so th th the rest of these are, are just kind of easy to understand. Excellence, worthy of, um, worthy of praise. Those things are not difficult. But, and Daryl brought this up, let your mind dwell on these things. It's like what I want you to, is Paul is now saying, have listed, let your mind dwell on these things. That's not a suggestion. That's not counsel. That's a command. With apostolic authority, he's saying you have to reframe what you are putting into your mind, and you must decide that. But here are some guidelines. Because Dave may be able to handle things that I can't handle, and vice versa. There may be something so innocuous it doesn't even bother me, but it brings a whole bunch of things back into Dave's mind. And again, I'm making this up because he's sitting to my left. That's all he's saying. So let's put it another way. When it comes to our mind, you must have a strategy for holiness. Don't ask me to give you that strategy. Here are some of the guidelines, and you have to decide what does that mean, a strategy for it. And I think more than women, that's how we're wired, more than women, you and I as men are very visual. And there, there are certain things that can affect us that it doesn't have any effect on a woman like that. 
But at the same time, it's understanding that, okay, what are my limits? And then you start to, a strategy for holiness that involves the strategy of denial in certain things. Now, by this time, when the Philippians had read this, they must have been coming unglued. How in the world are we supposed to pull this off, Paul? Look at verse 9. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Would you ever say that to somebody? You want to know how to pull this off? Follow me around and imitate me. I would never say that to somebody, would you? But you know, I raised two kids. And every time I uttered a word or carried out the decision or just lived my life, I had four eyes watching me. Two belonged to Jonathan, two belonged to Joanna. You can paraphrase this. Forgot life. But you can paraphrase this. Choose a good model. That's what he said. Genuine biblical Christianity is not only about teaching somebody something, it's modeling it for them. It really is. That's what parents are supposed to do to their kid, for their kids. That's what, a, you know, in the way we think of it in the 21st century, that's what a Sunday school teacher is to do for his or her little children that are in their group or they're in a teen ministry. The most effective element of a teen ministry, youth ministry, is modeling. They don't need to hear it. They need to see it. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. What do you do with that truth? You put it in your heart. He says, you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how you respond. And then he says, and, and you start to live it. And then he says, teach it to your children. And he says, teach it to your children formally. T teach them in exercises. And then, secondly, he says, and teach them as you're walking by the way, as you're getting up, as, you're rising, as you live through life. Model it. Show your kids how to do it. That, that's what Moses, excuse me, Moses, that's what Paul is saying here. I've just taught you clear truth here. I've taught you. This was not a three-point sermon. This was a four-point sermon. Now I'm going to say to you, want to pull this off? What you learned, received, I passed it on to you. Heard, you heard me say it. Seeing, you, you've watched me do these things. My, oh my, oh my. But you ought to, you ought to write something in your Bible or your notes. It's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Because there, Paul says, follow me, mimic me, do what I'm doing as I mimic Christ. So verse 9 isn't a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of a good teacher. I'm not only going to teach it to you, I want to show it to you. 
I'm not only going to give you the four key points in an outline, I'm going to challenge you to follow me around. I'm going to show you how to do this. That's a good mentor. That's a good, that's a good father. It's a good mother. It's a good Sunday school teacher. <clears throat> because if you don't, they hear you see it, say it, but they don't see you do it, you might as well shut up. Right? I mean, if you, if you don't live what you say is really important, just I used to study under a guy who said, man, if you're not serious about your walk with Jesus, please tell, don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Just hide it. <laughs> just pretend you're not, because if you're not serious about it. And that's all Paul is saying here. He teaches them. And then he says, I'm going to show you how to do it. Okay? Uh, a few years ago, I was convicted to memorize some verses. Um, and this is eight and nine or the verses that I read. Oh, wow. Fabulous. And that was like maybe five or six years ago. Mm. And I think for me, and I think for a lot of men, it's in you have to memorize that and these words just are so powerful mm. that to this day I have a little word Wonderful. and i got to memorize it absolutely, good yeah. your word I have put in my heart that I might not sin against you, David says Amen. good practice Good it's practice. Always work, yeah well it's a good start it really is it works, but we don't. <laughs> all right, now, now we've you know, we spent almost two weeks on just four or five verses. We're not quite done yet, but I, I want to make sure that you're with me. Do you have any questions or comments? I mean, this is this is eminently practical stuff here. This is really practical truth for us as men, and I'm trying to get us to think about it as men. But uh, this is kind of uh, rubber meets the road. You know what I mean by that? Rubber meets the road. Biblical truth here. This is a, this is life changing transformational stuff because this is what uh, this is one of the dimensions and qualities of life that's very 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 difficult to pull off without the supernatural enablement of God's Spirit. Hey Jim. Yes, Joel. Could I go back for just a second? Yep. In the end of verse five, it says, "The Lord is near." Mm. What does that mean? I guess maybe we didn't cover that last week, but um, it well, if you look at the verse, it's that's your forbearing spirit, that very difficult thing about getting. And then he adds, the Lord is near. Now, there are two ways to think about that. The Lord is near in the sense that his return is very, very close, and that should motivate you to let your forbearing, gracious, magnanimous, gentle spirit be known, or it means though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, I'm right there. I'm with you. It's like one of those things, it's ambiguous enough that it probably means both. It's to motivate us because, remember, the key teaching that Jesus is returning is to cause us to be ready and to be faithful. And so it's a motivation. Or it means I'm right next to you. I'm helping you. So I, that's a thank you for raising that question. I don't believe I did touch on that last week, so thanks for doing that. That was a good, good question. All right.
Do you think we're ready to leave this then? Is this convicting enough? So your takeaway this morning then, I guess we're actually in the afternoon now, but your takeaway is I want to live this, verses 4 through 8, but I also want to model it. There are a lot of people watching me. If you're still raising your children, your kids are watching you. If you have grandchildren, your grandchildren are watching you. If you're a boss, your employees are watching you. I mean, just go on and on and on and on. So it matters how we think about this. But especially as a dad, you are teaching your children. But can you say to them, whatever you've learned, received, heard, and seen in dad, practice these things. That's what a dad is. Amen. Yes, sir. Uh, paraphrase it and say, like I've said to my son before, have you ever seen dad do that? You know, he's doing something wrong, maybe, or not doing it, not specifically wrong, or he's not doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen dad do it that way? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, he might, anybody might come up and do it. Yeah. I understand that. That's... They're doing basically the wrong way, more or less, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's that's be as long as when you say that you're serious about your walk with the Lord. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely, I think that's a very good thing uh, to, to to say. My mother, um, my mother used to. This gets a little bit to, back to Joel's question. My mother used to say to me, and I can still hear her saying that. Do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? <laughs> you know, you just think about that. That the Lord is near, and I I can still hear her saying that. I did. I was a naughty little boy, and she used to tell me that all the time. All right, let Andrew. Uh, I, for some reason, this was just bringing up this memory. It made me think of it about following Paul's example and how that can sometimes be construed as a egotistical. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. But I was thinking about. There's always a good baseball analogy, but when I was learning baseball when I was little, and I was learning how to play third base, and you get these screaming ground balls, <laughs> and you let them go through your legs, and the coach comes up and says, let me show you how to do this. Yeah. He said, you get in front of the ball, and he showed, you get in front of the ball, and as any kid, I ask, well, what if it hits me? <laughs> and he said, it's going to hurt, but you stop the ball, mm. and you'll be able to get the guy out. Mm. And so you still you go through and you make mistakes and mm. you get afraid of the ball and that ball goes through there and the coach said mm. remember what I said mm. get in front get of the ball just for some reason that popped mm. in my head as an example in my life where I've had somebody say do what I do that's here, excellent and trust me that this is the way to do it and redirecting me back to that's excellent that's a great illustration <laughs> that is that's an excellent illustration I'm going to show you how to do it. And that's what a dad does for his kids. I'm going to show you how to walk with the Lord. Are they going to learn it on television? Are they going to learn it in Hollywood? Are they going to learn it from politicians? Are they going to learn it from... But no. Your responsibility is show them how to walk with the Lord. I saw a hand somewhere else. Yeah, John. We don't hear the word noble much anymore. Mm-mm. What's a synonym or what are we talking about in this day and age? Uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble. Respectful, dignified, virtuous, virtuous. all words that, (laughs) I mean, virtue. Virtue is a great word. Founders of this nation use virtue all the time. I can't remember the last time I heard somebody speak of virtue. 
It just it's not it's not a, it's not a term that's used very much. Now I I, I really I just want to introduce this because we won't get get into this. But the next section Paul builds on this. He builds on this quality of the peace of God and shows the Philippians how he lives this. And if you go down to verse 11, you see the word content. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. What is the word content as a verb or contentment as a noun? What what does that mean? Trust and faith. Okay, it it can, a dimension of trust and faith. And he's pretty much turned his life over to God. I think that's certainly true, Woody, and um, it would fit that, but it's even more than that. What what will that manifest? What will that look like if you're talking about contentment? Contentment, whatever situation you're in, whatever, be content. Okay, what does content mean? I love it because it's satisfaction with where you are. Mm. It's the opposite of covetousness. And it's the opposite of what you hear in the world. Because yeah. he said, don't be content. Don't be content. You're hungry for success. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You need more. Yeah. Uh, don't be satisfied with that. So, so let's, let's think of some more, again, synonyms. I'm not going to take the time because we're almost out of time. But if we put up in the word content or contentment, what would be some synonyms? I heard satisfied. Any others? Happy. Happy? At rest. What? At rest. At rest, okay. Peace. Okay, does that mean if you're contented, you can't be ambitious? No. Just whatever situation you have in front of you, you're content with it. It's not that you're not achieving for more. It's just whatever level... You're at. Was the Apostle Paul ambitious? Yes. Absolutely. He had a strategy of what he was going to do. And he was not satisfied with just planting churches in the Eastern Mediterranean. He was going to plant churches in the Western Mediterranean. And you read the book of Romans, that was his passion. I am going to Spain. It wasn't, you know, I'm sort of hoping maybe someday to sort of get, no, I am going to Spain. And by the way, Romans, I'm stopping off on the way to Spain. I'm, I'm saying that. So it, so it's satisfied with the circumstances. You're, okay, here's my question. We're going to close this morning. What produces that sense of satisfaction, contentment about those specific circumstances of that particular moment? Prayer, Prayer can produce that. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can produce that. Trusting God. It's, it's your theology. What you know about God, what you believe about God, enables you to be content. That's content is not the contentment is not the enemy of ambition. That's not what it's saying. Because life is filled with remember, we talked about life is a roller coaster. Just because you become a Christian doesn't end the roller coaster nature of life. But contentment is whatever the that's what he says. Whatever circumstance I'm in. I'm content. Because it, as, as, as Woody correctly said, it flows from my trust and faith in God. And I question whether Paul was ambitious. I, I think he was faithful to 
his instructions uh, from the Lord was to go out and make <coughs> other disciples and, mm -hmm. and share the word about Jesus Christ. So you don't like the word ambitious. It's okay. Well, I think he was following yeah. his instructions. Yeah, that's, he was obedient. And, and knowing mm -hmm. that he's in jail there because that's where he's supposed to be right now. Yeah. That was God's plan for Yeah, him. for that moment. That's good. That's good. All right. Next week, we cover... Well, we might just finish Philippians next week. <laughs> But if not, we'll be very close to it. But we are going to, very, if not next week, the very, but, but no stretch of imagination that next week we will. But we're going to soon start First and Second Thessalonians, which will take us a while. It's a very different book, very different than Philippians. But that'll be good. All right, thanks, guys. Great conversation, input. You're thinking through, and hopefully you take away some stuff from our time together. Let me pray here. Father, we're grateful for this passage we've been studying together and thinking and applying to our lives. Help us to be men who uh, seek to have that attitude of gratitude, that joy, to seek to get along with people, to, to represent you well in relationships, to be gentle and gracious and magnanimous, to be men who are learning what it means to pray conversationally, bringing you into every aspect, to be men who pray without ceasing. We just are talking to you about all the aspects of our life. And men who are serious about um, what we do with our minds, that's a hard, hard, hard thing to apply. But let's help us, Lord, to get started. Let us dwell on the things that are noble and right and true and worthy of praise and all the things that he talks about. Help us to know what that means in each one of our lives. Help us to be careful but discerning. And help us to be good models. Wherever we are in our walk with you, we can still model genuine righteousness, a genuineness about our relationship with you, even before our children and our grandchildren, that we're serious about this. We mean what we say. And as we, we seek to, to, to live that kind of life, we will also be manifesting contentment, which is what we want to talk about next week. So thank you for these men. Watch over them. They have a lot of responsibilities. Those who are still raising their children gave them, give them great insight, great wisdom, a deep relationship with their children. Uh, those who are married, uh, the same with their spouse. Be Ephesians 5.32 kind of marriages. And then for all of us, and whatever responsibilities we have, give us your wisdom, your insight, your discernment, and help us in all things to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you next week. Yeah.